We're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 9. You can see in the title is Fight for Joy. Now, joy is a pretty, uh, pretty constant theme in, in the Christmas season, right? You hear, you hear people talk about joy a whole lot. We've got joy up here. Uh, Luke 2.10 being quoted on this. You'll, you'll see joy everywhere. I feel like I see, during the holidays, I see joy everywhere except on people's faces, right? It, and the Christmas season can be a hard time for people to have joy. And just to show of hands, how many of you, like Christmas time is your favorite time of the year? It's time you really look forward to and it really brings you a lot of joy. Any, any of you others that maybe Christmas is a little more of a struggle, you see the holidays coming and you're like, oh man, here we go again. A lot of, for a lot of people, it's hard to be joyful, especially in the holidays. The Apostle Paul tells us in, a, in Philippians chapter 4 how we can fight for joy and he challenges what our idea of joy is because usually when we talk about joy the way that we typically use it even during the holidays what we really mean is happiness right we mean kind of a uh, happiness in my circumstances things are going good for me christmas time's coming i'm probably going to get some presents from somebody i'm going to get something and and so our our joy a lot of times is is rooted superficially in our circumstances but the apostle paul says that even in the hardest of circumstances, we can have joy. And he defines joy a little differently. As we begin, first I'm, I want to pray for us real quick, and then we're going to read the text and, and start talking about it. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would come right now by your Holy Spirit and fill this place. Father, I pray that you would um, use this message. Father, use me. I pray that you would hide me behind the cross, Father, and, and let your word be heard in this place. Would you open hearts and would you open minds to receive what you have for them? God, and I pray that every soul in here today would be transformed and filled with your joy. That joy that goes down deep, that's a commitment of the heart and not just a happiness in the circumstance. And so, Father, we pray for you to have your way in every life tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. So Philippians 4, 4 through 9, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. The, so the big idea of this passage is that believers are called to be joyful in the Lord Jesus in every circumstance through trust in the sovereign care of God and the pursuit of Christ's likeness in thought and action. And before we start unpacking this, I do want to go back just to that opening line. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. So in this passage, 
there are like six commands that come at you kind of in rapid, rapid fire fashion. He says, rejoice. That's a command. Then he says, when he says, let your reasonableness be known, uh, in, in Greek, that's a, that's an imperative. Let it be shown to the people around you. He says, don't be anxious. That's a command. And he says, in everything, let your requests be known to God. That's another command. And then he says, think on these things, all the, whatever's true and, and honorable and just, etc. Think about these things. And then he says, the things that you've learned and received, practice these things. So you've got a whole list of commands. And people who study the New Testament, scholars, they, they, they disagree about how these uh, commands are all related. Like, are they sequential? Are you supposed to have joy first and then do all the rest after that? So how are they related? So to understand, to follow what I'm going to say, you need to understand that I'm taking this first command to rejoice in the Lord always as the overarching command. The Apostle Paul is telling us that we need to fight for our joy and then he's unpacking what a person who fights for joy, what kind of practices are in their life and what that kind of life looks like. So when he says rejoice, I mentioned already that he's not just saying be happy, but he's saying that joy, real Christian joy, goes down deeper than that. When he was writing this letter to the church at Philippi, was the church in Philippi, does anybody know anything about their situation? Were they in a environment where they had religious freedom? Were they in an environment where people were, where it was cool to be a Christian and people were uh, helping them out, giving, going, going to do business with this person because they're a Christian. No, they were in, they were in a hard situation. They were socially marginalized. People didn't want to do business with them because they were Christians. They viewed them as unpatriotic because they didn't worship the gods of the empire. They were considered atheists. So they were socially marginalized. It was hard for them to get jobs. They were being persecuted by Jewish people who thought that they were a cult that was blaspheming the one true God. And they were being persecuted by their old pagan friends that they had left to join the Jesus movement. So they were, they were in under some crushing circumstances. And so the first thing I want you to know is what the Apostle Paul is saying is that you are called to have joy in the Lord in crushing circumstances. And not just in pleasant circumstances. And he says that we're to have joy in the Lord, meaning that the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's done on our behalf, he took on human flesh. This in Philippians back in chapter two, if you read that, it says that he humbled himself and he took on human flesh and he was obedient to God, even to the point of death on a cross. And he gave his life for you and me that we could be reconciled to God. He died to, for the sins that we committed and the death that we deserved. He died. And so be joyful in the Lord, meaning knowing what Christ has done for you, knowing whose you are and knowing the promises that God has made to you and that no matter what you're enduring right now, the best is yet to come. Don't you ever look back on your past and think that your best days are behind you. If your hope is in Jesus Christ, God says the best is yet to come. You have an eternity with him. If joy is not just superficial happiness, what is it? There's this uh, gentleman, uh, 
by the name of Gerald Hawthorne, who has really helped me here in an article that he wrote about Christian joy. He says, joy is not so much a feeling as it is a settled state of mind characterized by peace, an attitude that views life, including all of its ups and downs, with equanimity, which is a big word that means stability. It means you're not, you don't fluctuate with the highs of life, you don't go down with the lows of life, you're able to take life realistically, you don't have to minimize your circumstance and pretend like, oh well, I guess it ain't that bad, right? You can look at it and say, it's bad, but for some reason, my, I've got a peace and I know that God has got me. That's what we're talking about. He says, joy is a confident way of looking at life that is rooted in faith in the living Lord of the church. So I can look at my circumstances and take them at face value, but I also know that my circumstances are not the whole story because my God lives and he's promised that I will live with him at that last day. For Paul, joy is an understanding of existence that makes it possible for one to accept both elation, the highs, and depression, the lows. To accept with creative submission events that bring either delight or dismay. Because joy allows one to see beyond any particular event to the sovereign Lord who stands above all events. And so basically what he's saying is that Real Christian joy is a commitment of your heart, a perspective that says, all that I see is not all there is. The known facts are not all the facts. And there are some facts that are yet to be revealed. And when everything is shown for what it is, I'm going to stand with God in glory. And because of that hope, I can endure whatever life throws with me. No matter how crushing my circumstances get, I can still have joy in the Lord. You with me? All right. So now we're going to dig into the text. And by the way, if you've got a pew Bible, if you've got one of these Bibles under your chair, we're on page 1128. And we're going to be looking at verses 4 through 9. So first, the Apostle Paul tells us that we need to fight for joy by trusting in God's sovereign care for your life. Understanding that God is in control of your circumstances, in control of your life, is the basic framework for accepting whatever life throws at you. He says in in, uh, verses 5 through 7, he says, Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Again, Gerald Hawthorne says it's a confident way of looking at life that's rooted in faith in the living Lord of the church. And so in verse 5, he says, let your reasonableness be known to all people. This is is a command. Let it be known to all people. This word reasonableness is an interesting word. It only appears a couple of times in the New Testament and in in your translations, it may be translated gentle. Uh, in the New American Standard, it says, let your gentle spirit be known. Let your gentleness be known to all people. This translation says, let your reasonableness be known. In the standard Greek lexicon, it defines it this way. This word means not insisting on every right of letter, of law, or custom. Not insisting on having it your own way. 
People who fight for joy in the Lord, the first thing that you need to do is accept that because God has got you, because God is in control of your circumstances, you don't have to manipulate and connive and complain and convince everybody to let you have your way. Even if you're right, even if you have a legitimate right, it says that Christians have the capacity to die to their own rights to self because they know who's going to vindicate them in the last day. And consistently in the New Testament, Jesus Christ is held up as the model. In in First Peter, he says, look at Jesus Christ who, while he was being reviled, while he was being slandered, he didn't slander in return. He didn't come back at people even with, with verbal abuse or with his mouth. He He quietly subjected himself, and Peter said he did this, said he kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. Jesus Jesus wasn't insecure about his future. He wasn't worried about what they were doing to him because he knew what God the Father had in store for him on the other side of that cross. How will we live differently if we really come to believe what God has in store for us on the other side? We don't have to fight for what's ours. We can let God be our defender. And again, we can be real about it. We don't have to pretend like what happened to us wasn't wrong. We can admit that it was wrong and God's got us. He says, let your reasonableness be known. And then I love the way he puts these absolutes together. He says, be anxious for nothing, but in what? Everything. Let your requests be made known to God. The Apostle Paul says that there is no category of your human experience that you can't take to God and give to Him and ask Him to take care of because there is no category of your human experience that God is not control of, in control of. So you can trust God with everything because He's got everything. So let your requests be made known to God. He says... And with thanksgiving does not mean praying to God and thanking Him for what you ask for as though you already have it and that somehow obligates God to give it to you. What, when it says in everything with thanksgiving, He's saying that you thank God for, that you know that He hears you and you know that He is going to provide for you according to what's best for you. It's a, thanksgiving is a confession that God, I trust you in what you, what you're doing in my life. And then he says that the person who does this, he says, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So this is, this is evidence that Christianity is not just pretending like everything is okay. It is not like Karl Marx said, an opiate for the masses, just to keep us all subdued so that we don't, so that we don't buck the system. Christianity is the most honest uh, faith system for coping with reality. Because it looks sin, it looks evil square in the face and admits what it is. But it also acknowledges that God has got a solution. And God has got an answer. And, and again, what we see right now is not the whole story. And so you can look at your circumstances and know that these are not good circumstances... And yet have a peace that surpasses understanding. You have a peace that does not make sense. Anyone looking at your situation would not expect you to have peace. Right? 
I, I remember the first time I experienced this peace was when I got saved. I was, I was in a garden, a botanical garden, walking around feeling sorry for myself. And the Lord encountered me there. And he showed me that living for myself got me right where I was. And I broke down. I gave my life to the Lord. And I was in really bad circumstances. I was, I was sleeping in my truck. I was a daily drunk. Uh, yeah, I was in, I was in a bad, bad, bad situation. I'd just been kicked out of a house with, living with some people. And, um, and I remember consciously thinking, you know, there's nothing about my circumstances that are any different. I'm still in a, in a mess and I've still got a lot to figure out, but I had this peace in my heart, you know, where, where God was telling me that it is what it is and this is your own doing, but it's going to be okay. I'll tell you another story. I had a friend when I worked, I was in my early twenties. This was before I was a Christian. And I went to work at a manufacturing plant and there was this gentleman there and he was this huge mountain of a man. He was a bodybuilder and his, his nickname was Flex. And, and he was, he was just a huge guy, but he was a Christian. Every day I would see him in the break room and he'd be eating his lunch and he'd be reading his Bible. And he was one of the kindest, most gentle people that I've ever met in my life. And, uh, and I, I was just curious, you know, that he, he seemed religious to me. And so I asked him one day, I said, Flex, why do you, why'd you decide to become a Christian? Why did I said, why'd you get saved or something like that? And he said, he said, man, he said, if I didn't, I was going to kill somebody. And then he told me his story. The year before he had been married and he also had a girlfriend. All right. He was stepping out on his wife. And one day his, his girlfriend and one of her friends while he was at work knocked on his door. And when his wife answered the door, they sprayed mace in her face and they broke in and one of them held her down while the other one strangled her. And he came home and found her on his lunch break. And so Flex, his wife was in the grave. And his girlfriend was in jail. And he was left alone with all of his guilt. And he was faced with the fact that even though he wasn't legally responsible, he wasn't being charged with murder, he knew that he was morally responsible for what had happened to his wife. And in that moment, in the grip of that guilt, he met Jesus Christ. And he received forgiveness of his sins. And again, he became one of the most... Gentle guys, and I, and I look at this guy. How, when as he's telling me his story, how, with that story, how in your circumstances can you be so peaceful? How can you be so gentle? And do you know why? Because he found real forgiveness. He found as as horrible as what he had done was, and and he didn't need anybody to tell him. He didn't need anybody to give him a guilt trip about how bad it was. He knew how bad it was, but in the grip of that guilt. He found freedom in Jesus Christ. And it made him one of the most joyful, gentle, and, and ultimately he's one of the most uh, transforming influences in my life that eventually caused me to give my life to Christ. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding, it will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It will guard you. Don't you need... So you don't just fight for your joy, but God says if you'll trust Him, He'll protect your joy. 
He'll be your defender. Don't you need that? I do. Secondly, Paul says that Christians are to fight for joy by pursuing Christ-likeness in thought and action. In verse 8, he says we fight for joy by filling our minds with Christ-like thoughts. He says, think about these things. And what kind of things are we supposed to think about? He says, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. If there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, then think about these things. And why is it that we have to constantly and consciously direct our minds to what's good? Is because every day... And you know this from your own experience. Every day you are bombarded with things that are false, with things that are ugly, with things that are nasty. And so if you are not constantly and consciously directing your mind toward those, what is good to think about these things, you'll be overwhelmed. So he says you've got to fight for your joy. You've got to dig in and you've got to take those thoughts captive when they come. And you've got to direct your mind to the good. So many of us, our, our minds are a prison of our own making. And we are tortured by reliving offenses from the past. We're tortured by, by, by rehashing all the things that have been done to us. And the Apostle Paul says that you're not going to find freedom by thinking through those things as though you could come to another outcome, as though you could come to another solution from all those problems that you had. He said your freedom is going to be found in focusing on the goodness and the purity and the loveliness of God himself. As you direct your mind there, it has this effect of transforming us from the inside out. We call this meditation. And this is not like Buddhist meditation. This is not emptying your mind. This is filling your mind with the word of God. In Psalm 1, it says of the the man who lives a blessed life, it says his delight is in the law of the Lord And on his law, he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. And in all that he does, he prospers. Do you see here how he meditates day and night? He has sustained contact with the word of God and sustained contact with the word of God produces sustained stability. He's like a tree planted Back, back then, before chainsaws and bulldozers, tree was pretty stable. There wasn't too much that was going to take down a tree. He was like a tree planted by streams of water. So he sustained stability, and it yields sustained fruitfulness. Sustained contact with the Word of God brings sustained stability and sustained fruitfulness. If you want a fruitful, stable life, you need to have the Word of God in your heart and in your mind. I think it was uh, Charles Spurgeon said that uh, any man, if a man has a Bible that's fallen apart, it's very likely that his life is not. That's how he said it. So, contact with the Word of God produces stability in life. Jeremiah fifteen sixteen he says, Your words were found, and I ate them. In scriptures, eating the word of God is a metaphor over and over and over again about internalizing it, taking it inside and until it becomes a part of the fiber of who you are. And your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart, for I am called by your name, O Lord, God of hosts. You see that his delight 
was not in his circumstances. He says, your word was found by me and I internalized them and they became a part of who I was. And my joy then was found in the fact that I'm yours, that you're my God and I am yours and you've got me. My joy is not in my circumstances. It's not in whether things are going good or bad for me today. But it's that I'm called by your name. That you've chosen me out of all the face of the earth. You've chosen us to be your people. Amen? Alright. Secondly, he says, you need to fight for joy by filling your hands with Christ-like actions. In verse 9 he says, practice these things. And what does he say to practice? He says, those things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Now, if you were reading the whole book of Philippians at a single sitting, you would be surprised at how much the Apostle Paul pointed to his own example. Uh, He points to his own example as one who has suffered for the Lord, one who is sharing in the sufferings of Christ. He was, I mean, he was physically beaten chased from city to city, in prison multiple times. And, and so he says that, and, but he's also talking about this body of faith, this, what I talked about earlier, that Jesus Christ came into the world and he took on human flesh and he died for sin and he rose again. And now he stands forever as the living Lord of the church. He says, that that you've received from me, you need to commit yourself to that faith. And you need to commit yourself to my example of being diligent in serving the Lord Jesus. We talked about how Jesus, when he was going to heaven, uh, after he had ascended, uh, raised from the dead, he was going back to God, and he gave his disciples one basic command, and that was to make disciples of all the nations. That is, that is not, so discipleship is not a ministry of the church. It is not the ministry of some Christians. It is the reason that the church exists. It is the reason that Christians are here. If God didn't want disciples made, he would just go ahead and take all of us on to heaven. The whole reason that we're here in this present evil age, the reason that we're suffering what we suffer, the reason people keep getting sick, the reason people keep dying from cancer, and the reason we're not all just taken to heaven is that there are people out there that God wants to hear the gospel and to come to Christ and to learn to, and he's still in the business of gathering a people for himself. And if you consider yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, you're part of that mission. You've been commissioned. And so the Apostle Paul, he points to himself and he says, that manner of life, that pattern of life that you've seen me walking in, imitate that. Be about the business of making disciples. Be about the business of walking in holiness and before God and becoming more like Christ. And he says that when you do these things, when you fill your hands with these things, that's going to be, that's fighting for joy. People, you know, people who are joyful are people who serve other people. I remember reading an article in Psychology Today uh, a few months ago and, and, and this psychologist, they were interviewing them and, and they said, if you thought that you were on the verge of a mental breakdown, what would you do? And this psychologist said, I would walk out my front door and I would find someone to help. Because the, the mental health is promoted by serving others. 
anyone who's been through AA, NA, you know that's at the very heart of 12-step programs is that you need to find somebody to serve, to be at your best mental health, to be at your best health as a human being. You need to be serving other people. And so he says, fill in your hands with Christ-like actions is what it takes to fight for joy. And so the application is really simple. I want to invite you to fight for joy. I want to invite you to look beyond your circumstances to the sovereign Lord Jesus who rules above all circumstances. And I am not, I'm not trying to, to minimize. I know that some of you, you are under the weight of some crushing, crushing circumstances. Some of you are in a place in life that you never, ever thought you would be. And, and I want to tell you that the Lord sees you. He knows where you are. And, and if you will come to Him in faith, and if you will surrender your life to Him, if you will make His business the center of your business, He, He will give you a peace that passes understanding. Other people might look at you and not understand how you can have that peace, but you're going to know that God's got you. And secondly, I want to invite you to actively pursue godliness in your thoughts and actions. Some of you, again, some of you have have experienced some things that have left you in a prison of your own minds. And you are paranoid and you're scared of being taken advantage of. And your mind just can't stop racing with anxiety. And I want to invite you tonight to bring that anxiety to the Lord Jesus and ask him to take that from you and ask and, and trust him with that to say, Lord Jesus, I want to release this to you and I want to be free. And I want, I want you to be the center of my life and I don't want to make this person who hurt me the center of my life anymore. I want my life to be different from now on. I want to invite you to do that tonight. I don't know if we have any music. Uh, I'm going to ask Amanda on the spot if she'll come up and, and play a song and I just want to invite you to to respond and um, I'll be here if you want prayer I would be my joy to pray with you let me pray Heavenly Father thank you for this night thank you for every every person here Father it's it's chilly outside Father I pray that your Holy Spirit would come and warm every heart I pray that you would bring a peace that surpasses understanding to to troubled minds troubled souls tonight Father I pray that you would cause everyone here to abound in joy. I pray that you would be the center of their life. And I pray that just like I did, God, that they would find that that life is really not about being happy. Life is not really about seeking our own peace of mind. But life is about seeking your will. And in when finding your will, we discover our deepest joy. Because you created us for yourself, Father. You created us for you. And so I pray, Father, would many tonight find their purpose for life in you. We pray that the Lord Jesus would be lifted up in the minds and hearts of many, Father, and that you draw them to faith for the first time. We thank you, Father. We love you for who you are and what you're doing in this place. We say thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.